0: I want to uh, address something before we get going this morning. I'm going to have my hand here a lot of the time while I preach this morning, and I don't want this to be a distraction to you. Uh, I am not doing the reverse Pledge of Allegiance, but uh, I did cut my hand on my table saw a few weeks ago, and so. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks on a doctor-prescribed Percocet trip to La La Land where uh, unicorns are real and I can't make complete sentences, and it was terrible but, uh, but helpful at the same time. And uh, some of you who have been on those kinds of things before know what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm fine. I want you to know that. I don't want my hand to be a distraction, but if it's at my side, it just throbs and hurts. And so I just hold it here, and we're good to go. I would, uh, I would ask for your prayers, quite honestly. Um, everything is healing up on my hand, except for on my middle finger, the tip of it has turned black. And so that means that, uh, that it has died. And the doctor said that one of two things could happen. Uh, either fresh new tissue is growing underneath there and, and things will just continue to move forward. That's what I'm praying for. But there's also just the chance that it's dead and they'll amputate uh, part of my finger. And so obviously I don't desire that and uh, would covet your prayers that the Lord would heal it. But I do want you to know this. Uh, with that prayer of Lord Uh, please heal my finger. Along with that is also just a prayer of thankfulness because it could have been so much worse and guys uh, lose entire limbs on power equipment. And I was definitely in a position where I could have done some pretty serious damage. So I'm so thankful for Uh, The Lord sparing that. But with all that said, we've got some really important stuff to talk about this morning. And so, like I say, I hope my hand's not a distraction for you. I'm I'm doing good. I feel good this morning. But this is the last week in our series titled, Why I'm Not a Christian, where we've been basing our messages off of some statements that were made by British philosopher Bertrand Russell back in 1927. And we've got a picture uh, of Bertrand. There he is. I don't know if anybody else has shown you what he looks like. Fun fact, Bertrand is Kevin Russell's great, great uncle. And you can tell because of the resemblance, can't you? Uh, mostly the pipe, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. He's not, uh, he's not Kevin's uncle, but the pipe thing is real. Kevin does do that. But uh, Bertrand's lecture was titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And in it, he outlined his reasons... Uh, for doubting that there was a God, for doubting Jesus, for doubting uh, and questioning Christianity. And the reality is the issues that Bertrand raised in his lecture, well, they're things that people still wrestle with today. And so our goal in this series has been to address some of those issues in a way that might be helpful for you if you have some of those same doubts and questions. I hope that you found that to be true throughout this series. But, but also another thing that I hope it's been doing is equipping you for when you have conversations with others who maybe have doubts and questions. And, uh, and so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to wrap up with one last question, and it's this one. How can there be only one way to God? How can, how can Christians say that Jesus Christ is the one exclusive way to God? That's what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? Uh, that? That Christ is the one exclusive way to God. But it's so countercultural to say that. And to some it's even offensive. Because with so many different people groups and so many different religions and spiritual pathways, how can Christians claim the one exclusive way to To God through Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to do my best in the next 30 minutes to show you why we believe Jesus is the only way, but I've also listed several resources for you on your notes page in case you want to dig deeper and continue searching this out, and I hope that you will because the Bible is clear when it tells us that we are to always have a reason for the hope that is inside of us, and I hope that you will find the resources I listed as helpful in clarifying some of those reasons. Now, One of the resources that's listed there on your notes page is a book called When Skeptics Ask by Norman Geisler. And in it, Geisler says this. He says, the truth of Christianity depends entirely on the truth and truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine the life of Christ Uh, Who was he? What claims did he make about himself? And, And then what proof did he offer to validate those claims? Because here's what Bertrand Russell said about Jesus in his lecture. He said, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we know nothing about him. So I want to start with the first part of that statement, that it's doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. Because when I read that, I thought back to Kevin Russell's message from a couple of weeks ago, when he told us that there are no less than 39 sources outside of the New Testament that document the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Not just one or two, but 39 extra-biblical sources that, that refer to this man. And in his book, The Historical Jesus, which is also noted on your resources uh, there on your page, your notes page, uh, a man named Gary Habermas notes several of these extra biblical sources. and here's a little side note for you if you like digging deeper. If you go to garyhabermas.com, he has provided several chapters from his books for free on his website and you can read about several of these extra biblical sources there. I read through, couple of those chapters, and it was fascinating stuff. But one of the sources that he points to is that of Cornelius Tacitus, and, uh, and he lived between 55 and 120 AD. We've got a picture of Cornelius there. That's him one morning when he woke up all tied up in the bedsheets. Man, don't you hate it when that happens? Frustrating, isn't it? Anyway, Tacitus was a Roman senator and a historian, and he has been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And Habermas notes that he is generally acknowledged among scholars for his moral integrity and his essential goodness. Now, I want you to hear what Tacitus recorded concerning the great fire of Rome that occurred in 64 AD during the reign of Emperor Nero. Tacitus writes this, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. This was written by Tacitus in his work titled The Annals in 115 A.D., And Habermas points out that we can learn at least seven things about the historical Jesus from this account. Dewand, will you leave that up there? And I want you to kind of watch as I point out these points uh, in Tacitus' writing. First, Christians, he says, were named for their founder, Christus, which is from the Latin for Christ. Okay. Second, Christus was put to death, that's the extreme penalty, he was crucified by order of Pontius Pilatus. Third, this occurred during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, and Tiberius reigned between 14 and 37 A.D. We know that Jesus died around 33 A.D., so that puts him right in that time frame. Fourth, his death ended the quote-unquote superstition for a short time, and that superstition certainly being that Christus was the Son of God. Fifth, the superstition broke out again after his death. Sixth, the initial resurgence was in Judea, where the teaching had its beginnings. And then seventh, that ultimately Christus' followers carried his story all the way to Rome. Now, for those of you who know the biblical accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and the early beginnings of the church, does this line up? Does it? Yes, Yes, it does, doesn't it? Every single piece of it lines up, and keep in mind, this is just one of the at least 39 extra biblical sources about the historical Jesus. Now, Kevin also quoted a man named Dr. Edwin Yamauchi. He's a former history professor at Miami University, and he's quoted in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. If you haven't read that book, get it and read it. It's a a great story. If you don't like to read, now you can watch the movie, and so that's, that's good too. But Yamauchi has studied all of these extra biblical sources extensively, and here's his conclusion. He says, the fact is, we have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion. And so to Bertrand Russell's statement, is it historically doubtful that Jesus ever existed? Obviously not. We've only looked at one of those sources this morning, and we've seen clearly that he is recorded outside of Christendom by a man who, who seemingly is, is, is somewhat aggressive against Christians, and yet he records the events of Jesus' life, you know, that line up right with the biblical accounts. And this is before we even get to our best resource, which is the biblical accounts, So we begin today with the understanding that Jesus was a real man who lived in the first century AD and was ultimately killed by the Roman government. But I realize that there are some of you who are saying, I I don't question that. You know, there, there are people who say, I don't question that Jesus was a real person. What I'm questioning is that he's the only way to God. And certainly we are still a far ways off from showing that Jesus is the one exclusive way to God. And why do Christians believe that anyway? Well, to answer that, we need to turn our attention to the biblical accounts. And we're going to start where Kevin left us a couple of weeks ago with an understanding that these accounts are historically accurate, they're trustworthy, and they're true. And so if you weren't with us and you want to know why we believe that, I encourage you to go on to our podcast and listen to that message about the Bible and why we trust the Bible. But let's look at the gospel accounts and let's see what claims Jesus made about himself. I want to highlight five of them this morning. Uh, here they are on the screen. We've got a chart for you. First in John uh, 8 58, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And those who listened to Jesus as he said those words would have immediately caught this reference to Exodus three fourteen, where God said, I am who I am. And Jesus in this response is claiming to be God. Second, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and to have equality with God. We read in John five eighteen that Jesus was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Third, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. In Mark chapter 14, it says the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded there again with the words, I am again, aligning himself with God. Fourth, we see in Matthew 28 that Jesus claimed equal authority with God when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And finally, the fifth truth claim, and this is the one that I want you to write down if you don't write anything else, because this is what we're going to dig into this morning. He claimed to be the only way to God. In John fourteen-six, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I want you to notice in that verse that Jesus did not say, I am a way. I am a truth. I am one of the ways to get to God. No, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the one exclusive way to God. So this Jesus who we saw uh, was a real person in history. He made claims to be more than just a man. Like, that's, that's what some people say about him, right? That, that Jesus was, he was just a man like anybody else, or maybe he was a good teacher, or he was a good moral person, or maybe even go so far as to say a prophet. But listen, Jesus' claims about himself go so much further than that. He claimed to be God, to be the Son of God, to be the one exclusive way to God. And many of you will recognize the name C.S. Lewis, One of Lewis's greatest works is a book called Mere Christianity. And if you haven't read that one, uh, that's where I would start. If you're going to dig into some of this stuff, get the book Mere Christianity and read it. Lewis was a brilliant thinker. In fact, there are some of his works that are really difficult for me to read because he just thought on such a high level. He had been an atheist uh, early in life, and then J.R.R. Tolkien Did I get enough R's in there? I don't know how many. The guy that wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, he was influential in leading Lewis to Christ. And What happened was Lewis was invited to speak on a radio program over a series of days. And so Lewis went and he spoke on these different topics about God and faith and Christianity, and they recorded those talks into the book that is now Mere Christianity. And so because it was very conversational in nature, and because he put those talks together uh, for a very broad audience, it's very easy to understand. It's very accessible. So I would highly recommend that. But I want you to notice what he says in Mere Christianity about simply calling Jesus a good man or a good teacher. Here's what he says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or And this is what is often referred to as Lewis's liar, lunatic, or lord uh, theory. That Jesus was either willfully lying when he made these claims. He knew it wasn't true, but he said it anyway. Or else he was out of his mind. He's just mad. He was a lunatic. Or he was telling the truth. In which case, he really is the Lord. But he cannot be just a good moral teacher. Liar, lunatic, or lord. Those are the options. But how can we know which one it is? What evidence or what proof did Jesus give to back up these claims? Well, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. And these are in your notes if you want to write them down. And proof number one is this it's his fulfillment of prophecy. Now, Kevin mentioned a couple of weeks ago again that over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Christ, and let me just give you a few of them to show you how significant this is. I'm going to show you 16 of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament said uh, that the, the Messiah would be born of a woman, born of a virgin, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem, would perform miracles, would cleanse the temple, would be silent before his accusers. He would be rejected by the Jews and crucified between thieves. He would suffer pierced hands and feet. He would, he would pray for his persecutors. His side would be pierced. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Then lots would be cast for his garments, and ultimately he would rise from the dead. Now, These are just 16 of the over 300 prophecies made of the coming Messiah, and they weren't all made at the same time. They were made throughout the course of history. I've just pulled a few of them together here, but some of them were given over 400 years before Christ was born. And every one of the prophecies of Christ was fulfilled in Jesus and recorded in the New Testament. Now mathematicians have calculated the probability of just 16 of these predictions coming true in one man. And that probability is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. And that's a 10 with 45 zeros behind it. It looks like this. And I know Kevin showed you a number a couple of weeks ago. I just want to note my number's bigger, okay? Can we just make that that mental note this morning? And this is for just 16 prophecies being fulfilled in one man. Listen, if your horse has a one in 10 to the 45th power of winning the Kentucky Derby, you better not put money on that horse, right? A Shetland pony has a better chance in the Kentucky Derby than that horse. Those are impossible odds. And yet in Jesus, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled. And so it's that number that's on the screen plus 800 more zeros. That's the reality. And here's the point. It's not reasonable to believe that these prophecies were accidentally fulfilled in Christ. It's not a coincidence. Jesus of Nazareth was the one who the Old Testament prophets spoke of, and his fulfillment of all the prophecies shows that to be true. Okay, here's the second proof. It's Jesus' sinless life. If you're taking notes, his sinless life. Here's what we read in 1 John chapter 1. It's that God is light in him is no darkness at all. And so what John is highlighting there is that God is sinless. In fact, he's not even capable of sinning. That's not even a possibility with God. That's how pure and holy that he is. And so if Jesus's tra- claims about himself were true, uh, if he was and is God, then he also would, would have have to have lived a sinless life. And so do you know that not a single sinful act was ever shown to be true about Jesus. Now we can read in the New Testament a number of times when people came and they accused him of different things, right? But not a single one of those accusations ever stuck. In fact, at Jesus's trial, Pilate declared, I find no guilt in this man. At the foot of the cross, the Roman soldier said, this man was innocent. And the cross, or on the cross, the thief who is hanging next to Jesus proclaimed, this man has done nothing wrong. These assessments are testimonies to the perfect, sinless life of Jesus Christ. And each of these men came to the same conclusion after examining his life. But what about those who were closest to him? I think about the disciples. You know, they spent three years with Jesus and they were always watching him day in and day out watching what he did listening to what he said they saw his every single move what did they have to say about his life well peter called christ a lamb without defect in 1st peter chapter 1 he said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth in 1st peter chapter 2 john called him righteous in 1st john 2 and he said that in him is no sin 1st john chapter 3 And Paul said that Jesus knew no sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every single way, yet he was without sin in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Listen, every person who examined the life of Jesus Christ came to the same conclusion. He was sinless. And understand that if Jesus was sinless, then that means he never lied. And if he never lied, then we can trust him when he makes claims about himself to be God, to be the son of God, and to be the only way to God. Do you see that we can't believe that Jesus was sinless and yet deny those claims? If he was sinless, then his claims have to be true. So we have the proof of the fulfillment of prophecy, we have the proof of his sinless life, and then the third proof is this, it's the proof of his miracles proof of his miracles. One of the prophecies of the coming Messiah is found in Isaiah chapter 35, which says this. It says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Now, these were just some of the miraculous signs that would identify this coming Messiah, and the people certainly would have been watching for them, waiting and watching. Who's, who's going to come and who's going to do these things that Isaiah prophesied about? Well, as we read the New Testament accounts, what we find is Jesus turning water into wine. He's multiplying food. He commanded the wind and the waves. He walked on water. He made blind men see and lame people walk. He healed people of all kinds of sickness and disease. And he even brought dead people back to life. And all of these miracles were recorded by eyewitnesses who were there and saw it firsthand. In one instance, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is interacting with a man who had been paralyzed from birth. And Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven and there were some religious folks around, and they heard Jesus say this, and they started thinking to themselves, who does this guy think he is? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, because he knew what they were thinking, he called out to them, and he called them on it. In Mark chapter 2, he said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. So Isaiah said that the lame will leap like a deer. And Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and go home. And I have to wonder if this previously paralyzed man did a little bit of leaping on the way. You think he did? You know, Jesus offered these miracles. He makes it clear in this this passage. He offered these miracles as proof that he was who he said he was. And it's hard for me to comprehend that people could have seen the things that Jesus did and still not believed. But that was the reality for some. These religious leaders, their hearts were just so hard, they would see these acts and they just refused to, to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so that brings us to the final proof. Jesus gave one more. And I believe this is the greatest proof of them all. And it's the proof of his resurrection. The proof of the resurrection. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he says this about the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, with that in mind, with with Keller's, you know, response there in mind, I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to notice specifically what Paul says to these first century believers. Okay, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. I want you to to read it through their eyes. I want you to hear it through their, their ears and try to gain their perspective. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then that he appeared to Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, by the way. And then he appeared to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Doesn't it seem that Paul is inviting those first century readers to investigate this? He says, here's what happened. Jesus died he was buried and then he rose from the dead and you don't have to just take it from me go go ask peter peter saw it if you don't think peter's trustworthy go go ask any of the 12 they all saw it or if 12 is not enough ask the 500 most of them are still alive go ask them ask jesus's brother james you know james had some doubts you know, James grew up with Jesus. You know, he had some doubts about who he was. Well, he, he saw him. Go ask him what happened, or ask any of the apostles. See what they say. See if all their accounts don't line up. Don't just take my word for it. All of these people saw him. They will tell you he's alive. He has risen from the dead. Now listen, if Paul had any doubt in his mind, why would he have offered this information? if he was worried that the accounts would conflict, like if they had made this thing up and they got to really keep their stories straight, there is no way he would have ever said something like this because he wouldn't have wanted people asking questions. But Paul's not trying to hide anything. He says, listen, Jesus is alive. Peter saw him, the 12 saw him, 500 people saw him, the apostles saw him, and I saw him. I'm not making this up. He is alive. And to the point that the apostles might have made this up. Like that the resurrection was just a lie. Then why did 10 of the 12 disciples go to their death for it? I mean, you might endure some amount of suffering to hide a lie. But death, really? Would you die for something that you knew wasn't true? I mean would you lay down your life for that? I want to illustrate this really quick quickly. It would be like this. Most of you know that our lead pastor Paul Muma, is on sabbatical right now, right? But, but let's say that while he's gone, we decide we're going to change our message at Genesis Church. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell everybody that Paul died, okay? We're going to tell them that, that Paul died, and now you have to believe in Paul. It's the only way to get to God, okay? So you know he's on sabbatical. I know he's on sabbatical. But we are going to go out and tell people that you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Paul is Lord, okay, in order to be saved. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Paul. Okay? That's what we're going to tell people. And, so, uh, and the reason doesn't matter. It doesn't. So whatever reason you want to make up, whether there's some monetary gain in it for us or, or status or, or whatever it is that you want to want to think. We started our own religion. Whatever. The reason really does not matter at all. But you go out and you do it. And you start telling people and you start preaching the gospel of Paul. And people get mad. I mean really mad, okay? And, uh, and they've got you. They, they, they've seized you. They've brought you into a dark room. And they tell you, listen, if you don't shut up about Paul, we're going to kill you. And they mean it. Now, I know you love Paul, okay? I love him too. Some of us maybe would even die for him. But would you die for something that you knew was a lie about him? Would you? Would you? And some of you are shaking your head. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Could you find two more people to die with you for that lie? Or or how about ten? Could you find ten people who would say, man, we know this is a lie, but but we're we're just going to die. We'll die for it. We'll take it to our graves and die for it. Because that is what it would take to match the disciples' commitment to the testimony about Jesus Christ. And when you consider the horrific ways that most of the disciples were put to death, I just got to tell you, it doesn't make any sense at all. None. Historians believe that Peter was crucified, but upside down. That when Nero crucified him, that Peter refused to die in the same way as his Lord. And so he requested to be turned upside down to be killed. Andrew was scourged, and then they tied him to a cross instead of nailing him so that he would suffer longer. James was beheaded with a sword, Philip was scourged, and then they put him in prison to suffer for a while before they crucified him. Philip, uh, no, that was Philip. Bartholomew was likely beaten and then crucified, although there is an alternative account that suggests a far worse end for him. And in case there are kids in the room right now, I'm not going to mention what it was. Thomas was run through with a spear. Matthew was killed by a sword to the back. Thaddeus and Simon were both crucified James was 94 years old, 94, you guys, when they drug him out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they beat him, and they stoned him, and they finished him off with a blow to the head from a club at 94 years old. And yet none of these men, not one of them, ever withdrew their testimony about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ why would they have endured such horrible deaths if this was all a lie? If they hadn't seen Jesus fulfill the prophecies, if they hadn't witnessed his sinless life or his miraculous works, or if Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead, why would they have died for that? but the fact is they did die for it because they saw it with their own eyes and they heard it with their own ears and they wrote it down for you and for me to read and to know and to believe that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, that he was God, he was the son of God, he was the only way to God and he did everything that the scriptures said he would do. He lived a sinless life He died a sacrificial death so that you and I could access the Father through him. And then on the third day, he walked out of the grave so that you and I could have hope beyond this life. And so to our question today, how can you say there is only one way to God? Well, we didn't actually say that. Jesus did. And we simply choose to believe him when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, because the evidence is so absolutely overwhelming. And now, just like the disciples, we can only tell of what we've seen and what we've heard, that if we do confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And we agree with Peter when he said in Acts chapter 4 that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so I want to finish with this. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is interacting with his disciples and he looks at them and he asks them a question that I believe is the most important question anyone could ever be asked. He asked them, who do you say I am? And it's the same question that I want to ask you this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Was he just a good man? Was he just a good moral teacher? maybe a prophet, one of many ways to God. Who do you say he is? And I hope that you have seen clearly today that he will not settle for any of those titles. He did not leave that open to us. He did not intend to. A.W. Peter says it this way. He says, Christ will either be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. And so I ask you this morning, who do you say he is? And I pray that you've seen today, as Peter did in Matthew 16, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If that is true for you today, then today can be the day of salvation for you. Uh, You can pray to receive Christ into your heart, surrender your life to him, and you can know today that you are a child of God. If you do that, I'd, I'd love to talk to you after the service, but let's pray together. Father God, I I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for his sinless life. Father, I thank you for his sacrificial death. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit. By his power, Christ was raised from the dead. And Father, that in the life of Christ, uh, we see exactly how it is that you intended for man to be. Christ was man as you intended man to be. And so we can model our lives after Jesus, Father. In his death, he paid for our sins. Father, we owed a debt that we could not pay, and so he paid a debt he did not owe. And he brought us back into a right relationship with you. And, Father, then he defeated death, and he gave us hope beyond this life. And so, Father, I pray that you would find us setting our hope fully on the grace that will be given when Christ is revealed. Lord, if there are those here today who have come with doubts and with questions. Lord, I, I don't intend to squelch those doubts or those questions, Father. I just pray that they would be faithful to seeking out what is there, Father. You call us, you ask us to have faith, but Father, some of this you've just made plain for us to find. And so I pray that we would be faithful in seeking out the truth, seeking out your word, Father. You tell us that, that if we ask, it'll be given. If we knock, the door will be open. So find us faithful to those things, Lord. And I pray that our faith would be built up by these truths, built up by your spirit, built up by your word, Lord. And I pray that for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.